This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So in 2014, a group of biologists ran a PCR, polymerase chain reaction DNA amplification, on a number of biological samples to compare their genetic material to known control samples. This is, from what I understand, a standard biological procedure used every day in all sorts of scientific and forensic labs. The process allows scientists to replicate particular portions of a DNA strand billions of times, and if that portion they're looking for is present, to find it and test it in the sample. If you've ever seen a discussion of a DNA analysis for like a forensic TV show or a criminal science show, this is what they're probably talking about. So the reason I bring up this particular ex experiment from 25 years ago, when this is done every day in labs all over the place, is because in this case, some of the samples being tested were consecrated Eucharistic hosts that were obtained surreptitiously from a number of Catholic churches in the U.S. and Canada. So I just want to pause and say that first and foremost, as a Catholic, as a priest, this was a very offensive act. Uh, it never should have been done. Um, in addition to just the questionable method of obtaining them, they didn't, they, they stole them, basically. Um, it's a sacrilegious treatment of what we as Catholics, part of what we as Catholics hold most holy and dear. Now, the Eucharist has been abused in so many ways, but this is, this is an abuse and it's no excuse. Um, the authors who published the results tried to justify their actions, uh, but the fact remains it was, it was an offensive and a tragic act. You see, these biologists were trying to show, once and for all, they claimed, that the Eucharist is not the body of Christ. If Catholics believe in transubstantiation, then the substance of, that the substance of bread becomes the substance of the body of Christ, a human body, then there should be some evidence of this change. And the most fundamental place they thought that this change should take place would be in the DNA of the biological material. The results of the test showed that all of the consecrated hosts had strong evidence of sections of DNA characteristic to wheat and little to no evidence of sections of DNA characteristic to human beings. One of the samples showed a little bit of evidence of human DNA, but the scientists argue, and they're probably right, that it was related to some sort of contamination. So that does it, right? End of story. Transubstantiation was true. There should be no wheat DNA. The substance of wheat is gone. Uh, and lots of human DNA. The substance of the body of Christ is there. But the results are pretty much what you would expect if you grabbed a random sample from your local bakery. The thing is, if you asked any Catholic priest or theologian, however much they would object to actually doing this test, they would all have predicted exactly those results. Uh, none of them would have expected to actually see human DNA in the consecrated host, and if it were there, that would be miraculous. Those who ran the test, and, and many who commented on it, were aware that this was the Catholic position, but insisted that attempts to get around this test, by which they're referring to 2,000 years of philosophical and theological discussion, are just philosophical weasel. This episode and much of the commentary on it show a profound confusion about teachings on the Eucharist and transubstantiation. Sadly, there is even strong pooling data suggesting such confusion among Catholics themselves. Part of the confusion about the doctrine and even some embarrassment about it that has been expressed by Catholic theologians is rooted in a belief that modern science has made the doctrine of transubstantiation unreasonable, that it's somehow contradicted by the results of our best science. Now, I would love, in a certain sense, to jump right in and dive into the depths of this most sublime mystery. 
It's one of my favorite topics to think about and to study in theology. The particle physicist in me and the, the natural philosopher wants to kind of crack open the hood and try and understand the depths of what's going on. Uh, but I realize that I need to limit myself in this, uh, this talk, and so I'm going to be selective. So I hope to do three things in this talk. First, to clarify something of the general way that human reason relates to doctrines of the faith, like transubstantiation. It's important to do this to see what sorts of claims and evidence we can draw on to helpfully engage in a dialogue between modern science and the Catholic faith on such topics. Second, I want to clarify exactly what the church does teach about transubstantiation. What is this doctrine? Third, I want to apply some of what we discussed in the first part to the, uh, uh, to the second part to head off basic objections to the doctrine of transubstantiation, particularly those that are coming or appear to come from a scientific perspective. So first, we need some background on faith and reason more generally. The Catholic faith is a revealed religion, by which we mean that many of the truths of the faith are rooted in things that we believe God has revealed to us through the patriarchs and prophets, through Jesus Christ, through the authors of the scriptures, and handed down through the tradition of the church. Traditionally, some things that have been revealed are also knowable purely by human reason. I mean, some of these might be obvious. Historical facts like that Jerusalem is on a mountain in the Middle East. This is in the Bible, it's revealed, but it's also something we can know by reason, by traveling and seeing. Others might be less obvious. Traditionally, most theologians would argue that we can know that God exists purely by human reason. But on top of that, there are many things that are revealed that are not knowable to us by reason alone. Classically, an example of this would be that uh, the, the idea of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is not something that we can simply reason to, think really deeply about, and come to that truth. It's something that we only know because God has revealed himself to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The things that have been revealed that are beyond human reason are not contradictory to reason, though. They're not illogical or, or unknowable or against reason. Human reason is a gift from God, the revealer, and used properly cannot establish anything as true that is contrary to what has been revealed. As Pope St. John Paul II said at the beginning of Fides et Ratio, faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of the truth. So we can distinguish the things that are knowable purely by human, by human reason from those things that are knowable only by revelation. But once we have done so, we can still apply our reason to those truths of revelation as well, taking those as premises to think more deeply about the faith and what God has revealed. So beginning from what has been this directly revealed in scripture and the tradition of the church, we can think deeply about these truths and mysteries to come to understand them better. This process helps us to deepen our understanding of these mysteries, and it helps us to explain the faith to others. Now, explaining the faith comes in different forms, depending on the audience. If we're speaking to Catholics, those who accept the truths of the Catholic faith, at least by intention, if not by actual facts, if they haven't studied deeply the truths of the faith, we can describe and list various truths that have been revealed, pointing to where they are in the Bible and various aspects of the tradition, through reading scripture and catechetical materials. Further, we can then apply our reason to deepen our understanding of those revealed truths, taking those to the starting point. This is a big part of the work of theology, aided and supported by the guidance of the magisterium. If we're speaking to non-Catholic Christians, we can begin from certain common principles of scripture, 
as, as revealed uh, the revealed truth of God and argue that particular truths of the Catholic faith that they may not agree with really could really do uh, fit into the pattern of revelation. We as Catholics would believe them to be revealed coming out of the truth of Scripture. We can share a lot, but there still are some tools and sources that help and expand our faith as Catholics that we cannot presume to share. Certain writings of the Church Fathers, certain of the councils, certain teachings of the magisterium that clarify the Catholic understanding of things that we would not share with our Protestant brethren. Even if they do not accept these sources, we can at least argue that they are not contrary to what is revealed in Scripture. If we're speaking to theists, to those who believe in God, it's a little bit harder. Now, we can still begin from common principles about who God is and what the notion of divinity means to defend some particular notions of the faith. We're limited more to defending that particular Catholic teachings are within the realm of what God could do or would do or would reveal, that they're not contrary to human reason nor to whatever is common in our understanding of divinity. For those who do not accept the idea of God, we have to simply begin from human reason, common things accessible to all men and women. We cannot hope to provide a proof of the revealed truths for the faith simply by human reason. And in fact, doing so would be detrimental to the faith. Claiming we could prove something that we can't is, is, is untruthful uh, and, and unhelpful in the, in the process. As wonderful as the deep mysteries of the faith are, we cannot hope to simply convince them of their truth by reason. But we can at least hope to argue that any objections that they might raise on, uh, to the revealed truths from, from, from human reason and from science are not airtight objections, that the claims of the faith are at least possible. This is the level at which I hope to today discuss the Eucharist, to explain what the Catholic Church actually teaches and to argue in a way accessible even to those who do not believe that this teaching is uh, to, to believe in this teaching, that it is not irrational or impossible. I do not pretend that I will be able to convince them of its truth, but at least to show that it is not contrary to the best tools of human reason, in particular to the results of contemporary science. So, what is the Catholic teaching on transubstantiation? Well, the best and most definitive place to begin any conversation on Catholic doctrine is the Catechism of the Catholic Church. While the Catechism has many paragraphs, pages discussing the details of the sacrament of the Eucharist, when it specifically defi is, is defining transubstantiation, it actually quotes directly in full from the Council of Trent, session 13, from the year 1551. And that quote is, Because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God and this Holy Council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ, our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. So throughout the discussion of the Eucharist in the Council of Trent and in the Catechism of the Church, there's the, the, the words that I tried to emphasize in that quote come up over and over. The words species and substance. And these are the words that are consistently used to describe what the Eucharist is and what's going on. What begins as the substance of bread with the species of bread becomes 
the substance of Christ's body, but with the species of bread remaining. What begins as the substance of wine with the species of wine becomes the substance of the blood of Christ, but with the species of wine remaining. A lot rides on these words, species and substance, which are familiar enough in English, but that familiarity actually can lead to confusion. I mean, if we hear the word species, I'm guessing, the first thing that comes to mind is biological species, the Latin name for uh, uh, whatever you're talking about, homo sapien. Um, so that we think the, the biological type is the first thing we think of in species. If we think of substance, we comes to mind stuff. I don't know, my image is some probably some like gray, gooey, sticky stuff. Uh, but it's it's stuff or underlying, it's it's sort of a vague notion. These words, species and substance, as they're used in the Council of Trent, these are sort of English transliterations of words from Latin. These words, species and substance, were and still are technical terms, particularly in the philosophy that followed that tradition of Aristotle. But they refer to kind of general ideas. And I want to spend a little bit of time clarifying what those words mean because so much rides on them. So species is taken directly from the Latin for to see. And what's a general word that meant uh, in Latin, the appearance or the shape or the form of something, and was also used to describe something like the, the type or the class of something, what we might call the, 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 so the biological species would fit under that as well. But by the time of the Middle Ages, it had taken on a very particular role in philosophy, particularly in the discussion of sensation and cognition, how it is that we sense objects and come to know what they are. This broadly Aristotelian framework was the lingua franca of the intellectual world up through the time of the Council of Trent and beyond, up until really the beginning of the early of the, of the scientific revolution and the early modern. Even as new intellectual trends were rising up, they still used that language that they were drawing on from Aristotle, species. So in that context, species relate, broadly speaking, to the way that some physical object is made present in a cognitive faculty. First, the senses, and then the intellect. Focusing on the sensible species, there were uh, these were either the representation or the cause or the mode in which some external physical object is made present in the senses without actually being there. I mean, the way that our eyes can somehow can see bread without the bread actually being physically in our eye. It's what it's 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 the, the means of relationship between the object outside of us and the sensation that we get. Now, Thomas Aquinas had a very detailed picture of cognition and based on how an external object interacts through its accidents or properties with some medium, like the air in the case of uh, in, uh, in the case of vision. You know, it's for the transparency. Uh, the transparency of the air is the medium, or perhaps even our skin in the sense of touch that there's some sort of medium between the object we're sensing and the actual sensation that's going on. So, um, so the accidents uh, for, for Aquinas produce first a species in the medium. So it affects the medium, either the air or the, or the, uh, the, the, the skin in the case of touch. Um, then it affects the actual sense organ, somehow that the, what is transmitted to the medium is, some, is, is transmitted to the sense organ, and then eventually to the intellect, so in an intelligible species in the mind. Well, there is a ton to unpack in this theory, and uh, the point I want to make is that while many other scholastics did take up the details of Aquinas' account, many did not. 
Many describe species and their role in cognition in a completely different way. In the three centuries between Aquinas and the Council of Trent, there's a whole host of different scholastic notions of what a species is and how it works, the mechanism behind sensation. For some, they were a material thing that somehow moved between the exterior, exterior object and the observer. Um, for others, it was some sort of immaterial transmission, where there's no actual physical change in the medium, but some sort of immaterial spiritual change. For others, it was something in between. And some, like Occam, denied that species were actually a thing at all, but that the talk about species really is just a shorthand way of referring to some sort of immediate action at a distance of the sense faculty on the object it's looking at. So while I think and I find many aspects of Aquinas' account extremely compelling, and I think it actually coheres in very interesting ways with contemporary neuroscience and biology and, and other Thomists have argued for that, the point I want to make is that for the authors of the Council of Trent, using the word species did not commit them to any particular physical or metaphysical view of how sensation worked. The species of bread simply referred to the sum total of the way that we sense bread, however it worked in practice. The sum total of the ways that bread can leave an impression on our senses and eventually on our mind. So that, that's, that's the, the, what I want to get across about species. It's this, how it is that some physical object impacts or affects our senses. And there's different theories about how that would work. So the second word, substance, has a similarly deep philosophical history. Again, it comes from a Latin that is literally translates as to stand under. Um, and it came to refer to the thing that somehow undergirds objects in the physical world. Aristotle introduced this idea in, co in contrast to accidents or properties of things. Imagine for a moment a squirrel. What you're imagining, I hope, uh, should be a small, bushy-tailed animal that is brown or black or gray, depending on where you live, uh, and it's probably eats nuts, hibernates, runs around, looks skittish. Roughly speaking, every description we might make about the squirrel, its size, shape, color, temperature, the arrangement of its organs, the things it does, all of these are accidents or, or properties of the squirrel in, a, in an Aristotelian sense. What unites them all together is that they all reside in the same substance, this particular squirrel. So there are lots of properties of the squirrel that are somehow united and somehow being related to adhering in certain language that people would use for this in the substance that is this particular squirrel. As above, Aquinas has a very particular understanding of what a substance is, but many and, and how it relates to those accidents. But many scholastics took this Aristotelian idea in lots of different directions. For some, when we look at a squirrel, all that we actually observe are the accidents of the squirrel, and that's it. And the substance is somehow forever opaque and unknowable to us, uh, only a matter of some sort of philosophical reflection. For others, the accidents are somehow a direct connection to this underlying metaphysical thing of substance, giving us some real access to the squirrel and all its depths. There's subtleties and debates about how that works even to today. What was common, though, was the idea that the substance was what made something to be the thing it actually was, a squirrel or a tree or a piece of bread. Uh, and then there are various accidents and properties that manifest that being as a squirrel or a tree or a piece of bread to us. So again, for the authors of the Council of Trent, 
using the word substance did not imply any particular philosophical understanding of the word. It meant whatever the metaphysical principle was that made the thing be what it actually is. So all scholastics agree that in nature, these two ideas, species and substance, are very closely connected. It is through sensible species, the way that something appears to my senses, that I even have the possibility to understand what something actually is. It's how I gain access to that reality, to the substance. Some certain collections of sensible species strongly suggest particular substances. Small, gray, furry, bushy-tailed, eating squirrels strongly suggests, uh, eating nuts, not eating squirrels, eating nuts strongly suggests the idea of squirrel. Now, some of the species of a substance can change while the substance stays the same. I have not always been six foot three. I have not always had hair this short or quite this bald. Um, uh, my skin color has changed if I spend, spend too long in the sun. But I have, I'm still the same human person, even though the same substance, even though the different accidents of, uh, of, of me have changed. You can find pictures of me when I'm you know, only about a foot tall. Um, if enough species change, though, if enough of the sensory aspects of something change, it's a strong sign that the substance has changed as well. If that gray, bushy-tailed object appears particularly flat and isn't moving much, it's a pretty strong sign that it's no longer actually a squirrel, at least not a living squirrel. In nature, changes in substance almost always, I would argue actually always, involve changes in the species as well. The appearance of the thing, uh, the, the, the changes in the appearance of the thing, because no two substances affect our senses in exactly the same way. Not always, uh, now this is not always an exact correlation between uh, change in species and change of substance, but it's through changes in species that we can come to realize that there are changes in the substance. Just like it is through the species of something that we come to realize there's a substance there, it's through changes in the species that we become aware of changes in the substance. This relation between how a thing acts when, uh, 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 when we observe it and what the thing is, is the foundation for all of our knowledge about the natural world. And importantly, this is also the foundation for all observation and experimentation in modern science. Close attention to the observable properties of physical things give us insight into what they are and how they relate to one another. So in transubstantiation, the Catholic Church claims that, again, the whole substance changes while the species remain exactly the same. Although the host looks and tastes the same before and after the priest consecrates it at the mass, a real change of substance has occurred. The substance that is there, what is really there, is no longer bread, but the body of Christ. Similarly, what looks and tastes like wine is really the blood of Christ. This is weird. This is counterintuitive. In fact, by definition, it's contrary to our natural intuition. Our intuition follows our senses, which are screaming at us that this looks and tastes like bread and wine. It should be bread and wine. It takes an act of faith. It takes trusting in a source of truth that is not simply derived from human senses and human reason about the natural world to accept that the reality underlying the Eucharist does not agree with what our senses are telling us. And importantly, this is not new. This is not some new problem because of modern science. This has always been counterintuitive, even, in, even to, the, even to the, the most ancient of Christians. 
Now, this is not natural, right? This is contrary to the normal working of nature. But God, who creates and sustains every substance in being and undergirds by his power the action of every species on our senses and our intellect, allows in this one case, this unnatural arrangement, this supernatural arrangement. Here, the species presented to our senses or our scientific tests does not correspond to the substance that really undergirds it. This is unscientific. All our scientific measurements deal with species, the impact real things have, perhaps through some instruments, on our senses. We do not actually have sort of direct access to substance except through those species. We cannot measure substance directly. This is hard to believe, but it was hard to believe even in the Gospels. Christ himself admitted so much in John chapter 6. So why do we as Catholics believe this? Well, we take seriously the words of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper, as witnessed to in the Gospels and in Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians. This is my body. This is my blood. The witness of the apostles of the early church, beginning with the Didache, leading into the church fathers, builds up a consistent teaching that these words were and should be taken seriously in the Mass. And they have developed and clarified the understanding this over the centuries of, of what it means to say that this truly is the body and blood of Christ, even though it looks still like bread and wine. Now, at this point, there are tons of possible objections. There are objections basically saying, well, Jesus didn't mean that. That's not exactly what he meant when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. But those are arguments that are rooted in scripture. We're taking for granted that we're going to start with the words of Christ. Uh, and that's not the level I want to have this conversation. There are objections that, well, God wouldn't allow something so weird or strange that's contrary to what, 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 who God is and what he would do. Okay, well, that's an argument about what God, of who God is and, and uh, about revelation uh, and the way in which God acts, which, again, is not the level I want to have this conversation. You could object, well, that's not possible because God doesn't exist. Okay, well, that's a different argument, right? Um, that uh, it's true if God did not exist, this would be impossible. But uh, that's a whole other conversation about whether or not God exists. But there's still an argument to be said that this is not possible because even if God did exist, he couldn't do this. He couldn't actually perform, he couldn't actually bring about transubstantiation. The very concept of transubstantiation is somehow irrational and impossible. This is where I want to focus. So one form of this argument is that the very language that the church is basing the notion of transubstantiation on is outdated, is an outdated view of the world. That in a modern scientific context, the very words used in transubstantiation, species and substance, are incoherent, are nonsense. They make no sense. Now, it is true, as I said, species and substance in this particular context are unfamiliar to our modern ears. But the concepts, I would argue, are not. They are, in fact, recognized at the most fundamental levels of science. We recognize that to understand some physical object, we have to observe it as carefully as we can under a variety of controlled conditions, which gives us a whole host of ways that the object impacts our tools and instruments and eventually our senses. From this, we think deeply about what the thing is we are observing. This is particularly true when we think of really hard to imagine things. So if we're thinking about, sort of say, fundamental particles, right? 
we start to see some of their effects before we really realize what's actually there. We started to recognize electric charges well before we knew that they were being caused by electrons and photons. I would argue that this sort of distinction between what we observe and what things are have always been present in modern science, but it is particularly brought home, I think, in modern, in modern physics. I mean, quantum mechanics makes a hard distinction between what we measure and the wave function that underlies that. We actually talk about this as the measurement problem, that there's the way in which uh, uh, quantum, mechanical, quantum mechanical systems evolve when we're not looking at them, and something different happens when we observe them. The very process of observation somehow is treated differently. Now, there are huge debates over the measurement problem, over the nature of the wave function, whether there is a measurement problem, what it means to be an observer, uh, about what's really underlying this, what actually is the difference between the results of the measurement and, and what's going on underneath. In fact, you know, quantum mechanics, in a certain sense, has its own scientific and counterintuitive claims about species, about measurements. There's all sorts of weird things that happen in measurements. We see entanglement in the way that uh, um, objects are, are, are correlated in, uh, in a way that doesn't make sense on a kind of classical, classical system. It's hard to say what's actually going on underneath. Now, there are some strong claims that people might make about what's going on underneath, but the arguments they're making go beyond purely what's, what the science is telling us. The measurement problem of quantum mechanics itself, do, uh, you know, again, measurement problem in quantum mechanics doesn't exactly line up with the concept of substance and species as we would talk about in the Eucharist or philosophy more generally. Um, as anything that we could actually quantify, including the properties of the wave function, would properly speaking somehow be an accident of um, and not the substance itself properly. And then there are many further properly scientific observations that might shed light on the measurement problem and clarify that the confusion that does come up. That said, the sorts of limits that quantum mechanics places on the direct observation of what we see, of what we want to see, can remind us of a deeper truth that has always been present in science. That the question of what exactly science is telling us about the underlying reality is not actually a purely scientific question. And this comes out if you start to read philosophy of science, where people are making huge arguments about what actually science is able to tell us. There's a whole debate about realism versus anti-realism. Uh, um, is, is there, is the re are, are we, do we actually have access to a real world at all, or are we simply finding patterns and observations? Science, at its best, is built on our ability to observe and experiment on the physical world. It begins with our observation with sensible species, we use these to build up more and more detailed patterns and pictures of the world. We test these patterns and pictures by comparing them to new observations and experiments, new sensible species. For most scientists, this gives us confidence, and I think rightly, that we have achieved real knowledge about the nature and structure of the physical world. I would go so far as to argue that we find real knowledge of substances as they exist in the physical world. Ultimately, though, the question of how the collection of results and models and theories and laws that we are developing, how exactly these correspond to reality is a philosophical question and not a purely scientific question, as is evidenced by the wide range of opinions on that topic in the contemporary philosophy of science. So since this is the case, contemporary science on its own does not, and in fact cannot refute the distinction between substance and species, and thereby cannot, under, uh, cannot contradict the basic notions that underlie the doctrine of transubstantiation. That said, 
there are some philosophical pictures of reality that draw on modern science that would make transubstantiation impossible if they were true. As a simple, arguably unscientific skeptical example, any philosophical view of the world that claimed that the physical world does not actually exist, that all observation is just an illusion, um, you know, we're all living in the matrix, uh, you know, uh, would, would make transubstantiation impossible. If there's no there, there, there's nothing to transubstantiate. As a more scientific example, perhaps certain kind of realistic interpretations of the wave function in quantum mechanics, which claim that what actually exists simply is the one wave function for the entire universe. Some particular fluctuation in a nearly or actually infinite dimensional space, um, and that the three-dimensional world that we experience is just some subtle, subtle projection of a small subset of that fluctuation, that would be extremely problematic for the idea of substance and transubstantiation. But I would argue it is implausible for a whole host of philosophical reasons before we ever bring in the Eucharist. Of course, there are much less exotic worldviews that draw on science that would still be problematic for the idea of substances. In a sense, any worldview that any worldview that claims that reality in total is just a collection of particles or waves or strings, that there are no cats or dogs or trees or human beings or bread, would be problematic for transubstantiation. If the only things, the only substances, are those objects of our fundamental physics, it seems that there is no substance of bread or substance of the body of Christ even to begin talking about. While there are a whole host of philosophical problems with such reductionism, I would argue that there are at least two scientific problems with reductionist views of the world as well. The first comes from our actual practice of science and, and the nature of experimentation itself. An experiment is a human act. A scientist has to decide what to test and how, has to design an experimental process, uh, build a collection of devices, run the experiment, observe the results, interpret the data, compare it with previous results and predictions about what, is, uh, what they expect to happen, and defend his results to other human beings. If human beings are only a cloud of particles or a collection of fluctuations in a wave, there is no real distinction between experimenter and experiments. It's all one big collection of particles that just happens to be arranged at the way it is. Uh, there's no distinction between the thing being observed and the one observing. Any knowledge that we gain from our experiment is just some particular fluctuation of particles or waves that is at root no different from any other fluctuation. The very project of science and the results that we have derived from it and place our confidence on are just an illusion. If we actually believe what we have learned, that, that if we actually believe that we have learned anything about the world through science, I would argue that we have to believe that there are actually human beings actual scientists, which are more than just a cloud of particles or waves. At this point, we have to believe there's at least one type of macroscopic unified substance, a human being, uh, stealing a word, for, uh, stealing a phrase from uh, Daniel Dehan, who does amazing re uh, research in, in uh, the philosophy of neuroscience. He talks about the idea of a, uh, uh, a unit of rash, uh, a unified rational control that that there has to be some 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 uh, individual with some sort of unified rational control over the physical world in order to even begin to do an experiment. And I would argue that that and that one uh, instance of a unified substance is enough 
to save that minimal notion of substance that we would need to make transubstantiation intelligible. A second scientific objection to the reductionist view of the world draws on the actual results of various scientific experiments. And really, I'm focusing here on things about the relationship between uh, the layer of physics and chemistry and chemistry and biology. I think particularly if you look at quantum chemistry, which is outside of my particular expertise, and so I'm kind of just dabbling and poking at it, uh, but but there, there's great work that's been done on this by philosophers um, looking at this this, bear, this this distinction between uh, uh, physics and chemistry, independent of any sort of Aristotelian or Thomistic notions, and seeing that there's something interesting and important going on here. There are many clearly observable phenomenon, especially properties like temperature or chemical structure or phase transitions, you know, ice moving to water to vapor, things like superconduction and ferromagnetism. And many of these only make sense in what's called the thermodynamic limit. The phenomenon never appear if we restrict ourselves to just a small finite collection of particles. It's only when uh, any, um, uh, any amount of water or any magnet that has a finite number of particles involved, um, so any actual collection of water or any actual magnet does have only a finite number of particles involved. But in principle, the, the macroscopic phenomenon doesn't seem to make sense unless we analyze it, as, uh, if we only analyze it in terms of these finitely many particles. Um, we have to model it as something continuous, as something almost infinite. Somehow the collection acts differently as a whole than as individual parts, qualitatively new phenomena. Arguably, we have a species and an, observ an observable feature of reality that cannot be rooted in lots of individual little substances, but only in large-scale substances. In some ways, features even you know, lower down features like entanglement might point to something like this as well. So this opens the door to substances at various levels, realities that are not simply the collection of whatever the smallest little things we can find. Now, I hope that while the ideas of substance and species in the scholastic sense, and as used in the church's definition of transubstantiation and theology of the Eucharist are unfamiliar to modern ears, that they are not excluded by science and need not be excluded by our philosophies. And I think there's real strong arguments to be made that that's the case. Although that these, these terms, substance and species, are philosophical terms, appealing to them is not philosophical reasoning. It simply is pointing out the fact that we, are, we, we have to, at certain points, apply human reasoning beyond the limits of what science can tell us directly. Of course, the fact that the concept of species and substance are compatible with modern science, even if, that terminology, even if the terminology isn't, that alone doesn't prove that transubstantiation is true in any way. At best, it argues that it's not a logical impossibility. Now, many questions can be asked about what exactly happens to the substance of bread. How is this, uh, you know, if the substance goes away, where does it go? How does it change? Um, how exactly does this, the, the substance of the body of Christ come to be there? How are the accidents uh, related to the substance of the body of Christ? How is the substance of the body of Christ uh, in the Eucharist related to the glorified body of Christ as it exists in heaven? Um, there are lots of interesting theological and philosophical questions that we could keep asking about this, and they're really fascinating. I encourage you to do this. Um, I, I find, in particular, Thomas Aquinas' treatment of these the details of transubstantiation very fascinating, and very uh, very compelling. There, now, some of these details have been further defined or clarified by the Church, 
Um, but some of them are still the, 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 the fruit or, or the, the space for philosophical and theological reflection. But importantly, they don't actually properly fall under the sort of thing that contemporary science can disprove because they're not, we've, we've already made a sort of philosophical disconnect between the substance and species when we start talking about the Eucharist. They're properly sort of philosophical and theological ideas that we should, we, uh, that, that link to science in certain abstract ways, but they're not directly testable by science uh, uh, in the way that scientists might want them to be. So this seems to be a lot of effort for a very weak conclusion. Transubstantiation is not logically impossible. Uh, what's the point of going to all this effort? Well, whatever you may believe, uh, whether uh, whatever you may you may think about God, about the Eucharist, imagine for a moment that God does exist. Imagine for a moment that God the Father really did so love the world that He sent His only Son, that whoever might believe in Him might not perish but might have eternal life. This Son, equal in divinity to Him, to become a human being. Imagine for a moment that. Jesus Christ really meant what he said at the Last Supper. This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That we have the opportunity to be near him in a most profound way whenever we enter a Catholic church and are near the Eucharist, more profoundly than God was present to the Israelites in the temple. That we have the opportunity to receive that presence in our very bodies. And through that, inherit a share of the life of God himself, a foretaste of the fullness of what we hope to receive in heaven. That may seem like a lot to swallow for some of you, but as Catholics, we believe that this amazing gift is exactly what God has promised us and does give us. A gift so wonderful that we want nothing more than to share it with all the world. That requires a great deal of effort to clear away, clear away confusion and the perceived impossibility of the Eucharist, it is more than worth it. Can and do we not still use scientific observation to falsify hypotheses in particle and quantum physics? So he says, I'm told that the substance and the species of this MacBook uh, that he's listening to the talk on has been transubstantiated into a species of a MacBook and the substance of an F2 Raptor. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I, um, yes. So uh, I would argue that, right, um, we absolutely, you know, there absolutely is a natural link between species and substance uh, for, 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 and that is, you know, what we, what we depend upon for all that we do in science and all that we do in human interaction too. Um, and so, Generally speaking, if someone came to you and claimed that the you know the, the thing that looks like your you know your MacBook Two is actually whatever it was a uh, a Raptor or whatever it was some you know yes no that uh, I would not believe that person I would not believe their claim um, and I would ask for yes I would ask for a uh, uh, like on what basis are you making that claim um, because there's no natural reason that something um, there's no natural reason that the the uh, uh, yeah the, the normal natural process by which we come to know what a substance is is by looking very carefully at at the um, uh, the, the species that are coming from it. Um, I mean, in the case of a uh, like a MacBook, we can actually even like go to the manufacturer and talk to you like how what what did you bring together to make it? But even right, if somebody you know gave you an apple and said it was a steak, 
right? Um, you shouldn't believe them, right? Because everything about the apple, everything about its, its, its color and its taste tells you it's an apple. And our senses, for the most part, are extremely reliable in these things. They're consistent and ordered. Um, and that's, if they weren't, science wouldn't work. Um, but there's a difference here because we are being asked through faith uh, to believe something that is contrary to our senses. It's admittedly told that it's not what it's not what it looks like. Um, and so this is this is again contrary to the scientific uh, uh, argument. And so um, if any random person made that claim to me, I wouldn't believe them. But it's not just any random person who's making that claim to us. We believe that it is Jesus Christ Himself, that it is um, the, the second person of the Trinity, uh, incarnate in the flesh. Who made that claim to us and because of that it's a claim worth believing um, at least considering and i would argue believe and so it's because of the authority of who christ is and what he has revealed to us that we consider the possibility and uh, eventually by faith come to actually know that this is true um, but it's a different process of knowing than the normal natural process of knowing that we use in science that's going to be unsatisfying to sort of scientifically minded people often. It's like, well, I can't test that. No, you can't. We're trusting in the authority of someone that we, that, that, we, that we believe is telling us the truth. There's a way in which we do that at times in science, um, but not at the same level. Um, there's something different about this particular claim, and in general about the claims of revelation, that they are coming from he who is the source of all truth, he who is the source of all being, uh, and the creator who can actually make these changes happen. Um, so yes, I agree. It's, it's not scientific. Um, it's not something that would ever actually be scientifically testable. Um, it falls outside of the natural ordering of things. And so falls outside of the normal process of human reason, the normal processes of our interaction with the physical world. Uh, two questions came up about Eucharistic miracles. The mm -hmm. first asks if we should lend any credence to alleged miracles and perhaps could a given instance not be the species of flesh and blood, but the substance of bread and wine, if we're going to accept that there's a dissonance perhaps between species and substance. Uh, they, re they reiterated, couldn't any flesh blood species sample then be bread, wine, substance in a sense? Could Is there a possibility that, um, I guess, matters could be inverted? And, and then somebody else followed up saying, uh, have you heard of the Eucharistic miracle at uh, Skolka in Poland? And what do you think about that? Sure. So. Um... A couple of things. So first, I guess the, maybe the inversion thing first. Um, again, I, uh, in general, if anyone made a claim uh, other than the specific claim made in transubstantiation of a distinction of some sort of disconnect between substance and species as such, where something looks like this by all sensible things, but actually is something different, I'd be highly skeptical. Um, I'd, I'd want some sort of argumentation behind it. Um, it is in this one particular case of transubstantiation that, that I find it credible because of the person who, who witnessed that. In the case of Eucharistic miracles are interesting, but it's important to recognize, right, that um, they, they are uh, signs of the, the truth of the Eucharist, um, but they don't, they, they, there's a certain sense in which it's, it's um, the way in which there's, they can be signs is different. I do. I mean, I, I haven't studied all Eucharistic miracles, so I'm not going to sort of claim, make claims about particular Eucharistic miracles. But I think I, I find I found certain ones to be credible. Um, but it's important to say that, right? So, for instance, 
if there is a host that, uh, you know, different ways this has happened in different ways that either actually seems to have the species of flesh, right? Um, the important thing to recognize there is that, um, that even then, those, the species of flesh, or even the species that's like there's some blood that's there, doesn't actually correspond exactly to what we believe is present in, in the Eucharist. The actual substance underlying it is not just a piece of the body of Christ, but the whole substance of the body of Christ. Now, that's weird because Christ was presumably a lot larger than this. Uh, Christ was probably roughly, you know, I, I don't know what the average size of, of a Mediterranean man his age uh, in that era would have been, but somewhere between five foot and six foot tall, um, you know, uh, you know, a lot bigger than, than your standard Eucharistic host. So, um, but... There's, you know, Aquinas goes into the details here about what, how, how the, the substance that's being made present is both sort of exists in, you know, uh, Christ and his resurrected and glorified human body as he is living right now, uh, is the substance that underlies it, but without the proper accidents, without being six foot three, being, you know, an Israelite human being without the sort of the, the look and, and features of him. It's just the substance that's made present in this miraculous way. Um, and so even when a miracle uh, has other external features that point to that sign, either like the look of blood or the look of flesh, or even the actual being of blood or like the detestable signs of blood or flesh, um, there's still a difference between what, between um, what those signs, what those sensible species might be pointing to for us in what's actually underlying the Eucharist. Um, uh, the, the, yeah, so that, that um, mir the miracles are a different miraculous way of kind of confirming and reinforcing our belief in what's going on in the Eucharist, but they're, they're, not actually, they're still actually the same sort of disconnect where the full speech, the full substance of the body and blood of Christ are what's actually present underneath. One might argue that Trent gave a philosophical explanation because it was a philosophical time, not a scientific one. Is is it only possible to explain the Eucharist in a philosophical way? Would it, is it possible to explain it in other ways, like a modern scientific explanation, limited as it would be? Well, I think this is this is a a deeper question that I'm very interested in, in you know the relationship between you know philosophy of science and what it is that we're doing in the sciences. Um, I think, you know, the philosophy of science is a big, massive field, and there are lots of different arguments and claims that are put forward. Um, but I think I, I, I feel strongly, and I think, and I think this is something that you can make strong and coherent that what we do in the sciences, the things we actually engage with in the sciences, are always what Aquinas or, or sort of a scholastic uh, 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 person would call the, the the accidents or the properties, roughly speaking. We're engaging with the sensible species of things. We're doing it in a very, very complicated and technical way, but we never actually, uh, but, but that's, that's the mode in which we, we engage with things. We engage with things through the senses with the aid of various very complicated instruments, um, but we're engaging with the, 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 the accidents, we're making observations. And then we're reasoning to the, the reality that's there. So what I would say is that there's a certain sense in which, yes, the language that, that, that Trent is using is a, unfamiliar philosophical language, but there's still the same philosophical concepts that are actually present in 
the way we think about and talk about uh, science today. Now, some philosophers of science would say that we can never say anything about substance, that we can only ever talk about accidents, the relationship between them. Uh, that's an argument to be made in sort of an anti-realist notion of what's going on in the sciences, that all we're doing is maybe an instrumentalist sort of view that we're just we're, we're, we're making complicated ways of correlating the things that we observe. Um, I would argue that we can do more, that we can actually see more in that. But that is, properly speaking, not a purely scientific argument, that that's a philosophy of science argument. Um, so I think while we, we're in a different philosophical age than, than the, the Council of Trent was, we're, in, we're still in a philosophical age. Um, you can't get away from philosophy as much as you want to. Uh, if, you're, if you think you're not doing philosophy, you're actually doing it. You're probably doing it poorly. Um, so uh, we're, we're all somewhat philosophical. And unless we think deeply about the philosophical underpinnings of, our, of what we're saying, we're going to get confused about things. Uh, thank you very much for a great talk. I think you've made a good case uh, that even in the light of modern science, we can make uh, an important distinction between the sensed experience of the species and, and the substantial identity of uh, uh, physical things in in mm -hmm. our experience, of course, and as as you've touched upon, particularly in the question time, you know, Aquinas using Aristotle took that a little bit further through the substance oh, sure. dynamic and uh, to try and explain it a little bit more, yeah, mm -hmm. in light of his science and using the substantial the sort of substantial form that was something sort of underlying and invisible. I I just wonder whether, in the light of modern science, that those latter specifics don't quite stand up and whether we can do a little bit better in linking the appearances and and the substance uh because there's the link between them i think is is seen as much more interwoven now the parts of something with its holistic level which you've well shown is 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 a real level uh are are quite interwoven as are the properties they are all part of the nature of something they are intelligible in their own right at various levels physics chemistry biology and uh the we it's much more difficult to look at a sort of underlying invisible substantial form now as it were within uh biological or organic unities um rather it's much more understand now in all of these levels are understood through environmental relationships and functions and there certainly is a holistic level, uh, and therefore the concepts of substance and species, I think, are still going to be there. But I'm just wondering whether you're up for sort of exploring the need to develop some of the specifics of the way Aquinas explained transubstantiation for his science uh, and the way we need to do uh, today. When I say explain in, in the way that you're, you're saying, you know, just showing that it's not not incoherent and that we can say a certain amount about what it means for the substance to change um so i think i mean i guess maybe there's, there's two parts to, to to what i'd answer there um one is i think i mean there is a way of thinking about like substantial form um and 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 was i mean so uh uh, if you if you look at the medieval scholastic period from you know the 12th century to uh, you know, the time of Descartes, um, just about every idea you could imagine was probably proposed by somebody. Um, it was a very fertile ground for, for speculation. I, that's a little bit extreme, but just to say that there are like every I, every 
way you could think about talking about substance and action were probably proposed by somebody. Um, I think the, but there's a way that particularly I think early modern thinkers, and I think even today, people look back at the way uh, that the language of substantial form, um, like formal cause and things like final cause and final causality as this sort of like ghostly thing that's there, some sort of some implicit spiritual thing that's there. Um, and I don't think that's what Aristotle and Aquinas actually mean. Um, and there are, you know, a lot of contemporary philosophers of science and, and you know, historical philosophers looking at, at, at Aristotle and Aquinas in their own day who would, who would argue that that's not exactly what they were trying to get at. Um, and that, you know, now there are debates about what exactly did they mean in their own day and debates about how exactly that notion might or might not make sense today. Um, I, I, you know, I, I can't claim to have worked out all the details, but I think I, I find it compelling that there is room for and space for, and in a certain sense, a need for um, a broader notion of causality uh, um, in, in a contemporary context, including an idea of formal causality. I think it's, I think it's implicitly there in the way that we do science, even if we don't name it as such. And I think um, it's not direct, like the idea of substantial form is not directly engaged, like it's not like I would go through our physics textbook and say, ah, here's substantial form and there's substantial form necessarily. But I think there's a way that when we when we look at what we're doing in the modern in modern science, we look at the different properties and features of things, we can still reason to there being substances, which necessarily mean that there must be some principle that underlies the unity of that substance, which is the substantial form. Um, now that's a, a deeper philosophical question to get to. The question of whether that means whether a sort of updated version of that, how how different is that going to look than what Aquinas was talking about? That I'm not 100 percent sure on. Um, my general instinct is to try to sort of, you know, when I think about, you know, kind of Aristotle and Aquinas, and, you know, being a Dominican, I, my, my default is to sort of, you know, trust Aquinas until I don't have to, until I can't anymore. Um, and so I generally try to sort of take what he has to say as seriously as I can in a modern context. Now, certain things have to go, right? Geocentrism, four elements. But I think there's there's a lot about what he has to say about substance and substantial form that still carries over into modern context. Um, and I haven't, I don't think I've seen enough that needs to be changed such that you would actually need to radically change his description of transubstantiation. I think a lot of that actually would still hold up in a modern context. It's weird and unfamiliar, but importantly, it was weird and unfamiliar in his day. Right. It's not like transubstantiation is not odd because of modern science. Transubstantiation has always been weird. Transubstantiation was weird uh, in medieval times. It was weird, weird to the church fathers. It was weird to the apostles when Christ first proposed it. So um, uncomfortableness with the claims of transubstantiation uh, is not a reason to abandon it because that's always been. Now, we shouldn't like the idea that that's substantial form and the underlying ideas I think that's something that we can become more comfortable with when we deal with the, the philosophy of science more concretely. I will say, right, there's, and this is, this is Thomists, even people who are convinced by Aquinas do this all the time, where the easiest substance for us to know is the human being, because it's the one we're most familiar with. And so it's, that's the default by which we look at all substances. And that's problematic when you get below the level of the human being, right? Animals don't have reason and will. And so you have to sort of abstract from that. And plants don't have motion and activity in the way the animals do. So you have to abstract from that. And inanimate things don't have any of the, uh, the organs, uh, like organ, or, or, organized structure, at least for Aquinas, they didn't have any sort of organized structure that plants do. 
um, but they were still substances. They were a weaker sense of substance. Uh, and, and I think there's room for that even in a modern context. If we, if we look at the different layers and possibilities of substance, we're not, Aquinas in particular doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about immaterial, like inanimate substances, because they don't come up in theology that often. Uh, Albert the Great goes into this in a lot more detail. And it's kind of fascinating to look at how he talks about the substance of minerals and things like that. And I think there's actually some interesting parallels between what he does and how we might try to talk about inanimate substances in the contemporary context. I think that's a question that, that Thomas have not dealt with well. Um, and I think it's something that needs to be dealt with, but I would like to think it's possible. I'm wondering what you think about the objection that there, there's a sense in which we're getting a little too scholastic about it. Because when I, what I hear about the insistence that this is the body of Christ, doesn't Paul call the church the body of Christ as well? So why do we feel the need necessarily to get into all this accident substance stuff, which I can understand if that was all that was ever said about the body of Christ in, in the New Testament, but it is. No, there, there's a very interesting, I mean, and again, this, I mean, yeah, um, there's, a, there's a long tradition of, of, of conversations about, you know, the body of Christ and, and the idea of the mystical body of Christ um, and, and um, the, the mystical presence of Christ uh, in the body that is the church. Um, and versus the real presence. There's actually kind of interesting changes in the historical language at various times uh, between what's mystical and what's real between the, the church and the, and, and the Eucharist. Uh, so there's definitely been like deep reflection on these things. But there's also, I mean, um, there's also sort of particular things that come out in John chapter six, I think, starting with that have been, you know, I think just from the scriptures themselves that we can point to, let alone then kind of later reflection on the scriptures and what Paul himself says that we should believe about the Eucharist, um, and then further clarifications by councils over the centuries. So I think in one sense, as Catholics, we have lots and lots of reflection on this to draw on. And what we believe to be, um, you know, uh, 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 you know, magisterial teaching that is, that is uh, uh, you know, given to us with certainty through the influence of the Holy Spirit but but even in the core of what we find in the Gospels, right, there's like the word that Christ is using when talking about um, uh, in John chapter six. He's talking about unless you, you gnaw on this and chew on this, there's a very physical sense in which he's talking about the, 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 the reception of the Eucharist um, and the very explicit sense in which he's talking about this is my body. And the very fact that the apostles object to this and, and, and find this, you know, that, that many disciples leave because of this says that there's something more than just a kind of, uh, more than just a kind of spiritual or, or, or allegorical word, word to what Christ is saying. There's something very concrete and def difficult in it. Um, and so, yes, I think we should, there are like the language of the scripture is, 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 is varied and beautiful and that there is a real sense which we do talk about being part of the body of Christ. Um, and it is in fact, you know, through the Eucharist that we become drawn into the body of Christ in certain ways. And, and, and different theologians have, have sort of talked about that in different ways, about how the, the unity that's present in the body of Christ as, as a people is most fully expressed through the reception of the body of Christ in the Eucharist and relationships between the two. So I think, I think you're right to say that we don't want to, we don't want to simply focus on the Eucharist um, or simply focused on this as the only mode of union and connection to Christ, but the church throughout our history up until and including the Second Vatican Council has, has pointed to the Eucharist in particular 
and the mass in particular as sort of the source and summit of our worship and the, the, the sort of the highest and most, um, most close union and connection that we have with Christ. So it's, it's not the only source of grace, not the only source of union with our Lord, but it is, there's something special in particular about it. Um, and I think it only really makes sense if we take seriously the words of Christ. And that has been most kind of fully developed in this, in this sort of scholastic language. In theory, you could, we, could, we could use other language to apply to it, but I think we would end up saying the same thing in different words um, if we tried to use different language to apply it. Um, I think ultimately that the, the, the notion is going to be the same, even if we, if we change the language about it. 